Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, simpletons. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. Oh, the private podcast today. We've got Malabama in the studio. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman is here. Here to say yes to less. Uh, (laughs) Yes. We've got Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown. And joining us on the live stream, we got podcast Sean, Emma the Immigrant, and Social Jess, unless she's in labor at this moment, Mm -hmm. which is certainly possible. Yeah. Congrats to Social Jess on her first child at this point. Who knows how many more? There could be dozens more. That's right. Minimalism. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite minimalists is Leo Babalta. He's one of the first people who turned me and Ryan onto minimalism in our 20s. And he has six kids. Mm. Yeah. So he is a minimalist, even with condoms. <laughs> he decluttered <laughs> them all. That's crazy to think we did start in our 20s. And now we're in our 40s. Speak for yourself. Oh, my goodness. And for myself. <laughs> Shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you for keeping this podcast 100% advertisement free because advertisements suck. Yeah, they do. We're doing this live stream today. It's on a Friday. We're recording this on a Friday. We usually do our live streams Tuesday mornings, 10 a.m. Pacific time. But it was, uh, we had some stuff going on Tuesday. It was Ryan's wife's birthday, Mariah. Yeah. And uh, I sent her a text message. She got me. She got me the best gift for my birthday this year by not messaging me. Yes, which is like my favorite gift. <laughs> it's the day I dread most—the text message day. I call it. It's not even yeah. a birthday. I know. Isn't it funny? Like I thought the same thing on my birthday, just you know, about a week ago. Where yeah, I'm like, I have like 40 texts to respond to. <laughs> this is not a very good birthday gift. You know, you know what I hate? The lazy birthday text where someone just says HBD, nothing else. It's like. Why even text? Oh. <laughs> right? Like, just be all the way lazy. Save time for both of us. I don't have to read it. You don't have to write oh, it. Man. See, this is why I don't put my birthday on Facebook so that only the people that actually know when it is will reach out. And that's mm. like six people. Yeah. It saves me like 300 <laughs> notifications. Yeah, That's smart. So instead of just saying happy birthday to Mariah, I texted her. I said, happy no nut November. <laughs> 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 she oh res- <laughs> her birthday's November 1st she's already failed <laughs> well, she just texted back I hope not <laughs> and so I was thinking you know I'm not a big fan of semen retention mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but like I figured we would try something out I think this entire podcast recording the three of us will try to retain our semen <laughs> Good luck. November's my birthday month too, man. Y'all can't be doing this to November. Y'all sabotaging the whole oh month. Oh my god. No, I will say um the uh, uh the 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 text that you sent with all the happy birthdays. I think it was from Patreon. Yeah, yeah. So our patrons, I just yeah. said, hey, we're not doing a live stream today, but feel free to wish Mariah a 
happy birthday. Yeah. And man, I mean, there were dozens and dozens of yeah. comments. She really seemed to love that. Yeah, she really did. It was yeah. great. Shout out, patrons. Thank you so much. Not, yeah. not only do you keep the podcast advertisement free, but you bring great joy to our lives in the comment section. Amen. I said we start with our callers today. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you are a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Colette. Hi, my name is Colette. I'm from Washington, D.C. My husband is a minimalist like me, but he has seven boxes that we keep in our basement storage closet. It bothers me, um, and I've told him, but he doesn't want to do anything about it. Is there an effective or loving way to try to explain to him that this bothers me? I'm willing and open to try anything. I've tried over the years, but nothing has worked so far. So we're going to get Colette on the phone here because I want to know about what is in these seven boxes that are hiding out in the basement in this storage space or impromptu storage space. So, Professor Sean, if you could get Colette on the phone, I'd love to talk to her about this. Hello. Hey, Colette. Joshua Milburn and the minimalists here. TK, Ryan are here. How you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you for letting me do it. Yeah, our pleasure. I appreciate your question. I, I'm really curious about these seven boxes that are hiding <laughs> in your basement. My first question is, do you even know what is in them? And does your husband know what's in those boxes? I know what's in them, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's mainly just um, some books, um, some old paperwork, some old cards, um, some old medical uh, paperwork, um, some old schoolwork. I think that's pretty much it. Okay. So yeah. it's, uh, we have these clutter coffins down there. It's a bunch of things that have essentially been rendered useless to you at least. Yeah. Right. And you would like them to be out of the way. It sounds like they're taking up space. Why does it bother you that they're taking up space down there? Um, that's a good question. Uh, it bothers me because our home is, pretty tidy. We don't have a lot of clutter and both myself and my husband really enjoy that. Mm. Um, we can tidy up quickly. It reduces our anxiety. Um, and it just, it, I feel like it's something that can be done simply and just taken care of. And we don't have to have these boxes that we move with every time we move yes. for the last seven years. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, so every time you move in the last seven years, you don't open these boxes. You don't use the things in these boxes. They simply Correct. are, they travel from one storage space to another. You know, quite often we have right. these storage spaces throughout our houses, uh, basements or attics or closets or spare bedrooms, or we turn our regular rooms into storage space mm. as well. And you said that it's clutter and mo most of your home just doesn't have clutter in it. And so this, when our homes are filled with clutter, we usually don't notice the clutter that much. It's, yeah. it's hard right. to see uh, a needle in a haystack, but it's harder to see a needle in a needle stack. And so if you just mm -hmm. have tons of clutter, you may not notice a little bit of clutter. But right now what you're saying is I've got this clutter. Now clutter is anything that gets in the way of your well-being. And so those boxes may not be cluttered to your husband. And I think that's where yeah. 
the the disconnect is right now. For him, it's not getting in the way of his well-being. It's not even really getting in the way. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind. But of course, as yeah. you've experienced, Colette, the boxes are not out of sight, out of mind. They're in your mind. It's creating this mental clutter that you have to have to deal with. And so yeah. I experienced this in my own life. I um, uh, We bought a new house earlier this year, Bex and I did, and she has more stuff than me that she uses. She has some camping gear that we could theoretically fit somewhere in our home. I could cram it into a closet somewhere. Uh, we don't have a garage. We don't have a basement. We don't really have a functional attic. So I could find some space for all of her camping gear. But what we decided, and she'd be fine with that, by the way, if she just put that in our little closet in our bedroom, she'd be fine with keeping it in there, but it bothered me. And so I simply asked, hey, can we figure out a solution together? Would you be willing to simply help me clear this clutter? I recognize that it's not clutter to you. It happens to be my issue. It is clutter for me. And so I'm willing to move it to a storage locker and pay for a storage locker for a period of time until we have the space here at our home, let's say we're actually saving up money to get a shed in the future. But right now we're, we're spending some money mm. on an outside storage locker so that I don't have the clutter in my home. Yeah. And that might sound crazy <laughs> as one of the minimalists. Well, you have a storage locker. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really about getting the clutter out of my home so it's not in my way. But I also recognize that, and Ryan taught me this a while ago, that when I have a problem with something in our relationship, the worst thing I can do is make it my partner's problem mm. as well. Sure. Yeah. And so, Ryan, I, I don't want to, I don't want Colette to turn this into her husband's problem because it sure. feels like, oh, if he were just to deal with his problem, then everything would be fine. And that may be true. But I think the truth is, Colette, this may be for you to deal with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Colette, I'm, I'm curious, like, is there... Have you asked your husband why he's kind of holding on to these boxes? Is it a matter of it's sentimental or is it more of uh, he just doesn't have the time to go through it? Have you had that conversation with him at all? Yeah, I have. Um, and it's both of those things, like mm. um, some sentimental things and then some things he's saying, oh, I, I might need it one day. Let's not throw it out. Like yeah. I might need it. I might want to look at it one day. <laughs> it's like, I mean, <laughs> seven years. <laughs> like, he hasn't even opened the box. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, um, I relate with that because I certainly had the boxes unopened that used to travel with me from place to place, um, you know, a, a while ago. Yeah. I, I love, I love your idea, Josh, about, um, trying to find a solution together. Cause this isn't about like, you know, either Colette has to suffer or her husband has to suffer. It's about like, how can they both come to a, a common ground? And maybe Colette like pitching it to him about renting a storage unit to get these things out of the house. Um, if that's worth it to him to spend that money every month, then, you know, maybe that's what you all do. But I'm willing to bet that it's probably not worth the money that yeah. uh, he would have <laughs> to spend on the storage unit. Yeah, I've got some stats on storage units. I mean, so our... Yeah, the, the storage industry, especially in America. So 90% of all storage units are in the United States of America, wow. which is a staggering statistic. So I don't think consumerism is a uniquely American problem, but amassing of consumables, of material possessions, of excess 
that is a uniquely American problem. We amass yeah. it in all of these storage lockers. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, I'm not against the storage industry. There's 1.6 billion square feet of storage space. That means if you put every American in a storage unit, you'd still have extra space left over. Wow. So there is <laughs> a lot of storage space out there. I'm not against that industry if it's useful. Bex uses her camping equipment all the time. It mm-hmm. falls within her boundaries. I wouldn't, however, just take seven boxes of random things we don't use and simply put it in right. a storage <laughs> unit because the cost of that is too high. Just spending any money on these things that are essentially useless to both of us. The problem right now with your husband is he doesn't realize the pain that you're experiencing because he's not experiencing that same pain. Or if he is, maybe he doesn't even realize that he's experiencing that pain. TK, do you have any insights for Colette? How's it going, Colette? Good. How are you? Good. Um, Have you told your husband how you feel? Like, Not so much about the stuff, like we need to get rid of it. But have you expressed to him how much it bothers you and overwhelms you? Um, I have. And I think it's like a broken record at this point. How how does he respond to it? He doesn't want to discuss it. Got you. When when Ryan asked you the question, um, one of the things you mentioned is that some of the stuff he wants on a just-in-case basis, some of the stuff he just, you know, has to go through. What do you think he would say? If you were to say to him something like, hey, look, I really want you to get what you need out of your stuff. And I also really want to protect myself from the way it's affecting me and weighing me down. Some of this stuff you probably should keep. Some of this stuff you might be more willing to give up than you think. Can we put a date on the calendar, even if it's a month from now, where we can just take some time and go through it together and see what we're willing to do and what you need? What do you think he'd say to that? Um, he might be open to it. I, I, I'm willing to try it, definitely. I, I, the, the reason I, I, I propose that is because sometimes when, when you can get him to state that why and you can have a discussion about that why, it may be possible to negotiate some agreements between the two of you that allow him to fulfill that why in a different way. So if he's got some just-in-case items Maybe maybe it can be an agreement between the two of you of like, hey, look, how about if in the future we ever need that, I'll I'll buy it for you, or we could make this kind of agreement to, in order to alleviate that concern, and maybe there can be some alternative agreements that can help him find some different ways to meet that why. That's a good idea. Yeah. And Colette, I also think that it's really important to set up boundaries here because we're not talking about we don't want to go into a conversation like this and say, hey you need to get rid of these seven boxes. Right. It's not about an ultimatum. It's about helping him understand that maybe some of this is junk. Some of it's non-essential, but it's adding some sort of value to your life. Maybe it's sentimental Mm -hmm. items. Mm -hmm. But having 100,000 sentimental items really diminishes the sentimentality of those items, right? Sure. Uh By keeping a dozen of them instead of 100 or 1,000 sentimental items, you actually get far more value from the sentimental items that you keep. I know when I was going through my mom's stuff, that was one thing that was really important to me. And then the other boundary was, okay, maybe seven boxes is too much, but maybe, and you need to understand this, maybe zero boxes is not enough for him. Yes. 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 That's probably true. (laughs) And so maybe we can get this down to one box. And And that'd be wonderful. (laughs) 
and he'll get more value from it. You won't have to get an outside storage locker. You can put it in your basement and, and you can have it in a really nice bin. Even you can go out and you can you know find a, a nice aesthetically pleasing bin where it looks good, doesn't feel like clutter for you. You sort through it together. You have your own little version of a packing party where you're going through these memory triggers. You can even have conversations about the photos and the artwork or anything that's in there. You can laugh at the absurdity together of why was I holding on to this receipt or why was I holding on Mm -hmm. to this 14-year-old tax information. And you can make it playful because right now it's not playful at all. It's the opposite. And he feels like I don't have any control and she's trying to have some sort of power over me. And that creates resistance in the relationship. And that's not what you want. You simply want to clear the clutter. Yeah. Exactly. Anytime I hear about disagreements like this, I I always think about that book, Nonviolent Communication. And and Colette, if you haven't haven't read it, I would highly recommend reading it because what it does is it helps uh, situations like this where one person has an issue, um, but the other person does not have the issue. And, you know, if you go to your husband and you're like, hey, you know, your boxes are offending me or they're making me upset, like that is going to probably put him on the defense where, you know, if you approach it in a way where you're like, hey, honey, we've been together for, you know, five, 10 years, whatever it is. And um, I really need your help with something. And I know I've, I've asked for your help on this before, um, but I really um, am just really asking for you to help me with this situation. And, you know, it's about those boxes. Like they really... Um, they cause me a little bit of anxiety. I know they're important to you and um, I want you to to have what's important to you. Um, but I'm just wondering if we could find a solution together. Like when you approach it like that, it's more you can kind of enroll him into helping come up yeah. with a solution rather than, you know, kind of pointing the finger and saying, hey, these are your boxes. You need to do something about them. Well, one last thing really quickly, Colette, in, in reference to what Ryan just said, sometimes it can help to write those kinds of things down. If you've had mm-hmm. a conversation over and over again that's been ineffective, maybe writing can give not only you a little more control over your tone so that you're not talking about things in the heat of the moment, but in a way that's more reflective and pensive and empathetic. But also for him, it can give him the space to take in your words without you being right there to read and respond to the reaction he has. And that might be something that's useful. I know it might sound crazy to write a letter to your spouse, but That that might create a little space so that he can process in a way that um, allows him to give a better reaction. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And um, I do have that book, Ryan. Oh, so awesome. I think I'll, you know, look over it again <laughs> for some tips. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one for sure. It is. And if you're looking for some more boundaries, you can always download that free ebook we have, The 16 Rules for Living with Less. I think some of those, especially as you're going through the stuff, the just-in-case rule, the no-junk rule, the just-for-win rule, the seasonality rule, the spontaneous combustion rule, I think all of those will really help you with your conversations with him. You could even have, I mean, it's a short book. You can read it in less than half an hour. It's uh, The 16 Rules for Living with Less. You can find that over at theminimalists.com. Colette, thank you so much for your question. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. And I love you guys. You guys are great. Oh, we love you too, Colette. Thanks again. Thanks. Our next question is from Abigail. This is Abigail Kennedy. I live in Sacramento. Do you keep laundry supplies and cleaning supplies to a minimal? And how do you accomplish this? You know, it's interesting because I used to have, even when I first became a minimalist, guys and gal and other gals, (laughs) I had a lot of, I was still sort of steeped in my OCD. And then 
this just came up again this past week with me and Bex. She was like, wait, because on the first of the month, I've got my once a month rule, right? Mm. My once a month rule is I, I go through and I change the photo on the fridge. Mm-hmm. I put, we, have only have, we keep one photo on the fridge, right? And so it's whatever photo I want to put up that month. I will change my toothbrushes out because my dentist said, hey, you should be changing this out every month. Otherwise, bacteria, et cetera. Okay, done. I will charge anything that needs a monthly charge, like a safe or, or something like that. Uh, and then I will also refill the soap dispensers, even though they don't, maybe they're only halfway empty or whatever, or half full, depending on how you look at them. <laughs> I will go through and I'll, I'll put more soap in all of our little soap dispensers at the kitchen sink, the bathroom sink, et cetera. And Bex was like, wait a minute. Did you just put dish soap in the hand soap dispenser? <laughs> and I was like, Bex, that's just a marketing term. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> like, we, and she's like, oh my God, you're right. Like all this time I've been buying two separate things. Mm-hmm. And I don't care, by the way, Abigail, I don't care if you buy 10 different soaps, you do whatever you want to do. But I realized a few years ago, like it's all functionally the same thing. Yeah. Now, of course, I'm not going to put Dawn. I would never buy Dawn soap. Anyway, you don't put that in the dishwasher. You'll learn a, a terrible <laughs> lesson. I learned that lesson once. <laughs> Everyone's done it once. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Ella had lots of fun in that bubble bath <laughs> in the kitchen. <laughs> no, I, that was... Uh, um, and, and so, yeah, you'll learn some lessons there. But fundamentally, I try to get down to the absolute basics. I mostly clean with hot water. And a little bit of environmentally friendly soap. I avoid any harsh chemicals, mainly because I'm sensitive to them. And I found that it's much easier to just have less, Mm. even in the cleaning department. Because keeping clean is not about using harsh chemicals to sterilize Mm. everything. Mm. A meaningful life is not a sterile life. Mm. And so the lesson I've learned here with cleaning products, with laundry detergents, all of these other things, when in doubt, go without. Mm. Now, let me expand on that because I think going without actually kills the doubt. Here's why. If you go without and you find, oh crap, I really do need some sort of soap. Okay. Then it killed the doubt. I was unsure. So I'm going to bring some soap back in. But if you go without and you're like, oh, actually, I'm fine without it. Or you know what? Maybe it's even better without it. You know, the laundry sheets, or what are they called? The dryer sheets. Yeah, dryer sheets, yeah. the static, uh, whatever. It's They're nonsense, right? And yeah. I found that my clothes were much better. They felt better when I stopped putting those toxic chemicals into the dryer every single time. So I haven't used those in about a decade. Mm. So we stopped using them, and the static is what drives me. Anyway, but there's a solution to... Uh, other than the sheets, there are solutions. Yeah, we use those uh, dryer balls. Yeah, that's what we used to. Yeah. 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 Right. And those are reusable. I mean, I, I've had the same set of three for like a decade now and they, yeah. they just keep spinning. Yeah, us too. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting because um, I know I used to buy a cleaner for everything. There was the countertop cleaner. There was the floor cleaner. There was the yeah. uh, the dish soap. There was the, um, you know, uh, bathroom cleaner, the toilet bowl cleaner, the shower cleaner. Like, I, f- I felt like I had to buy all of these different specialized cleaners. It's marketing nonsense. It really is, man. And then um, Mariah helped me kind of come to the same conclusion that that you're talking about, Josh, where she was allergic to and sensitive to a lot of these chemicals. Mm -hmm. So um, we had to find things that 
you know, that, w- that we could have in the house that um, wouldn't like, you know, c- cause her any harm or anything. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered is like, yeah, like there's really, I think we have one cleaner for everything now. I don't know what brand it is or anything, but it's like we use it for the floors, the countertops, the showers, the toilet bowl. We might have mm-hmm. a toilet bowl cleaner separate, but that's just it. It's like one or two cleaners. And uh, yeah, it works great. Yeah. And yeah. yesterday I was cleaning my toilet bowl yesterday and I used hot water and a little bit of soap, mm-hmm. the same soap that's actually on the countertop right there in the bathroom. Mm. I put it on a, a rag and I, I'd clean the whole toilet and it was fine. I mean, yeah. no one's going to come to my house and accuse me of being <laughs> so, some sort of... Uh, it doesn't smell like bleach in here. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is terrible. I don't right. want it to... You're right. right. It doesn't smell awful like bleach. Smell. Thank God. Yeah. It doesn't smell awful. It's It smells great. And... What I've learned is that being a minimalist is not about making everything so sterile that it feels inhuman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, you come to my space, if you're one of our private podcast subscribers, uh, video subscribers, you know that we do these weekly home tours every week. You know, no one's looking at that and saying, oh my God, uh, that must be awful mm-hmm. to live there. No, it's clean, mm-hmm. but it's really clean because we're constantly aware of what causes dirt and excess and and we're we're preventing that from happening before it comes into the house man i thought you guys were real minimalist mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. i not only use the same soap to clean my hands as my toilet, but I use the same hands to clean them both. I don't even use the rag. I just <laughs> clean my toilet with the hands there, wash my face right after. <laughs> I thought you were going to make like a 13-in-1 soap, you know, for your hair, your face, your butt, everything. That sounds like Broner's. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, w- washing my, my face and my head and then cleaning the toilet at the same time. <laughs> Switch hands for efficiency. Oh, he sticks man. his head in the bowl and cleans off the bowl. <laughs> like, why have a shower, man? You can just use the toilet, the same toilet. It's uh, ultimate minimalism, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you shaved your head. Uh, didn't want to clean the toilet bowl anymore. Man, we keep the cleaning products so simple. Not because I ain't subject to the marketing savvy, but because my wife gets all that stuff and she pretty much regards 99.9% of the stuff that's sold to us out there as just absolute poison. Mm-hmm. So we yeah. keep it real simple. You know, and one thing I'll say too about like the amount of supplies, I kind of think that like just as beauty is, what is it? What's the saying? Just as beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. I think minimalism is in the eye of the manager. Like, you know, if you have too little or too less, too little, or what is it? You know, if you have too much or too little by like how it feels to manage it. You know what I mean? So like if having to manage it stresses you out all the time, then you've got too much, you know? Mm-hmm. But if if managing it feels like, oh, I like this. And so there are some things I do frequently, a lot of times, because it just feels better to do it often and in small amounts. And then there are some things that I prefer to buy in bulk because instead of saving space, I prefer to save time. Yeah. And so it really does depend on you and what it feels like to manage the process. I never have to clean my showers. And the reason being, and Ryan knows about this, I have a squeegee. I got to get a squeegee. And I squeegee the shower every day. It's doing that little bit. And I actually look forward to it. It's almost a meditative practice for me at this point where I I don't do it like, oh, I'm going to have to squeegee. No, it's like, oh, yeah, I get to squeegee the shower now. And there's no soap scum that ever builds up. I'm not putting harsh chemicals on my shower. And every day I just squeegee the walls. Mm -hmm. I squeegee the floor. And then it takes, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds, probably not even that long, but I'm there, I'm present, there's nothing else disturbing me, and it doesn't require a single chemical, it doesn't require any soaps, it doesn't require gloves. I mean, here's a sign, if you have to wear gloves to clean something... 
because of the chemicals that you're using, maybe I don't want to be breathing in those chemicals in the first place. Mm. So I don't have any cleaning gloves. I just simply clean as I go most of the time. And then, yeah, I'll go in occasionally uh, once a week. And it takes me less than an hour to clean the entire house mm. and make it look spot spotless. Even like if we're going to do mm. baseboards and stuff, it doesn't require any heavy duty chemicals. I want to get those out of my life because talk about clutter. Mm. You want some health clutter in your life? Continue to poison yourself with uh, with the nonsense that we're sold as cleaning solutions. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The cleaning as you go is that's huge. Um, yeah. The squeegeeing. There's something like satisfying. It's like mowing the grass. Aww. There's mm-hmm. something satisfying about the watching the lines like <laughs> squeegee your way yes. to enlightenment. Yes. Squeegee your way to enlightenment. <laughs> it's very Mr. Miyagi. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's no uh, ironing, but. <laughs> <laughs> Next Halloween, y'all could be uh, Mario and the Squeegee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Our next question is from uh, someone named Jordan in Akron. This is Jordan from Akron, Ohio. I kind of just wanted to get your guys' thoughts and opinions on uh, what to do about a recent, like when you recently graduate college and you know you have to go to master, uh, you, you know you have to get your master's degree, but you don't want to go into more debt. I know you guys have done episodes in the past talking about resources and stuff like that. Um, I got my psychology degree about a year ago, and I really want to become a therapist. And you really can't do that without getting your master's degree because you have to become a licensed professional. But I really don't want to go into more debt. Um, I want to try to pay out of pocket for it. I want to try to get scholarships. But looking at the cost of these master's programs for two and a half years, it is so overwhelming to me. And I just don't know exactly what to do. I mean, thankfully, I do have a job now where they do offer tuition reimbursement, but I have to be there for a year. I'm only about like six months in. And um, a lot of the times the scholarships, when you apply, sometimes they will reward you and it will save until you get into the program. And then sometimes they'll say, hey, you know, you can't apply because you're not in school yet. Mm-hmm. I want to apply for scholarships, but a lot of them, it's like I already have to be in a program and I don't want to commit to a program because of the debt. So I just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts and opinions on maybe and maybe share some resources uh, or people that I could maybe like look into to kind of help me with that dilemma. Well, Jordan, I don't have any thoughts or opinions. I have some truths for you here. What's the truth? Is is it possible? Has anyone in your scenario ever graduated from college or attended college and left without debt? Mm. Well, obviously, the answer to that is yes. Yes. And so the question is, what then is their recipe? I, I honestly think that the answer to your question is actually in the question itself. Mm. She brought up quite a few things about, well, uh, uh, getting a debt-free degree, tuition reimbursement. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds like... That's awesome. Yeah, but I, I haven't been there for a full year. It's only been six months. Okay, right. well, in six months, it sounds like you'll have the opportunity for tuition reimbursement. Yeah. How wonderful is that? You talked about scholarships. You talked about it really being overwhelming. And I think that the sense of it being so overwhelming is what is making you sort of throw your hands up and say, well, this is impossible. I can't do it. Yeah. I've tried everything. Well, have you really tried everything or have you tried three things and those three things didn't work and then so I gave up? I get that. I've been in that same exact scenario. In fact, I wanted to learn more about this because I thought very similarly to Jordan. I thought that, oh, you know what? In order to go to college, you have to get a tremendous amount of debt. 
I also told myself, well, you have to go to college, right? You, mm. You'd be a failure if you didn't. Obviously, TK has proven that wrong with Praxis, you know, the, the company that he started, which is an apprenticeship program that sort of circumvents the traditional route. And so mm-hmm. you can also go, well, you can go the untraditional route as well. And TK, I'd love to talk to you about that in a moment because she said, you, I have to become a licensed professional. Mm. And uh, I want to challenge that notion. But if you decide that you want to become a licensed professional, it is totally possible for you to graduate college, graduate school, completely debt-free. I interviewed Anthony O'Neill. He wrote a book called Debt-Free Degree, which you can check out. But I interviewed him for Love People Use Things, Ryan's in my last book. And Jordan, I'm going to send you a copy of this book. But here on page 195, here's what it says. Anthony O'Neill taught me that contrary to popular belief, you can graduate from college completely debt-free. Quote, I've helped thousands of students who have gone to college without a single student loan, he said. How? O'Neill calls it finding money for school and saving money on school. Grants, scholarships, and selecting an affordable university are the three legs upon which a debt-free degree is built. So we got three three ingredients here. Grants, scholarships, and selecting an affordable university. So all three of those are probably equally important here. It's not that you pick one of those. It's all three ingredients. Did you know that there are more than 10,000 scholarships and grants out there? Essentially free money that's waiting to be grabbed. I know this only because O'Neill has a scholarship search tool on his website, anthonyoneill.com, which helps students find grants and scholarships that are most appropriate for them. O'Neill told me a story about a high school student named Jimmy. During his junior year of high school, he applied for nearly a hundred different scholarships and grants. Suffice it to say, he was disappointed when more than 80% of his applications were denied, but several got approved. And when Jimmy did the math, he realized that he had earned more than $400 an hour just for filling out scholarship applications. Yeah. Where else can a high school student earn that much money? 400 bucks an hour. So yes, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get the majority of them telling you no. 80% are going to say no. Maybe Mm -hmm. more, maybe 90%. Yeah. But maybe you'll make 100 bucks an hour, 200 bucks an hour on scholarships, free money. Yeah. Other than finding money for college, you can save a considerable amount if you pick the right school. Did you know you can save $66,000 a year uh, on average by uh, $66,000 on average by attending an in-state community college your first two years instead of a reputedly prestigious private college, mm. after which you can transfer to any university of your choice and still graduate with their diploma. A little bit different for grad schools, but uh, the same principles uh, still apply here. Some schools are far more mm. affordable than others. And finally, it says, to be clear, if you want to graduate debt-free, there's more nuance than finding scholarships in an affordable school. Everything adds up getting good grades in high school, scoring well on the ACT and SAT, taking college courses during the last year of high school, setting up a college savings account, taking some online classes. That's a great way to save money. Applying to work-study programs, living at home while attending college. But ultimately, there's already a blueprint to get through college without strangling your future self with debt. Yeah. And I know that's not super sexy, Jordan. There's not like this great answer. Why won't anyone pay for my college for free or give me? Well, there's no such thing as free. You have to take those resources from somewhere. Even if we forgive debt, that money does come from somewhere, right? And so 
I want to challenge the assumption here, TK, that you have to go into debt in order to enroll in some sort of graduate program. But I also want to challenge the assumption, and maybe you take it whatever direction you want here at this point, that you have to be a licensed professional to pursue the thing you want to pursue. Ryan and I aren't licensed minimalists. We're not licensed podcasters. I think TK is. He has some sort of certificate he shows me. <laughs> Secretly. Right, right, right. I'm just waiting for somebody to be like, I don't trust you. You don't have any certifications. Then I can like, bam, whip it out. As a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> I secretly have like five PhDs mm-hmm. and I like bait people like, you don't need a degree though. Like, I don't respect you. You don't have one. Bam, I got like five of them. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so there are some fields where it is illegal to practice them without certain licenses, certifications, mm-hmm. credentials, and so on. I don't know enough about this field to know if that's one. But what I would do is I would make sure that I draw my conclusions from the evidence provided to me by people that are actually working in those areas, rather than just accepting some cultural axiom that you got to have a degree to succeed. Because sometimes we we have these beliefs that seem to be non-negotiable, and it's just a belief that we've inherited. It's just a common sense belief that society has given us. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's false. Whatever conclusion you come to, I would come to that conclusion by talking to people that are actually doing the thing that I want to do. Mm. There's no better advice you're going to get in the professional world than the kind that comes from talking with people that do the work that you want to do. Too many people telling folks what to do about their careers when they haven't any experience in those areas. You know, as one of my old professors used to say, you can't know there until you go there. Talk to people that have gone into the places that you want to go. A couple of other things. It takes time to fulfill a dream. It takes time to put yourself in a position where you're doing the work that you love. And I think one of the hard parts about that isn't that you know, it takes two years or three years to to get into that field. The hard part is how do we stay within the orbit of the things that we love in the meantime, in between time? That's the hard part because it often feels like we got to do a bunch of boring work, you know, soul stultifying work before we can finally wake up one day and, I, and say, I love my job. And what I would encourage you to do is first look at the things that you have working in your favor. You only have six months to go before your employer starts to make those contributions. That's awesome. Congratulations to you for putting yourself in that position. What I would say is look for ways that you can interact with what you love in in order to build future credibility and future experience without making it all or nothing. Like one day in five years, I'll get to be a therapist. So one idea that you can act on is you can say, I'm going to do a podcast. I don't even have to show up every single week. I don't even have to have a big audience. But once every month, I'm going to record an episode where I interview someone who is a therapist. And I will ask them the questions that are interesting to me about my field and about the process of helping people. In three years, by the time you're in a position to go into your field, you'll be able to look back and you'll say, wow, I've got this track record of three years worth of interviews with the top experts in my field. That's going to do wonders for your credibility for your knowledge, for your uniqueness, for your network. And all of those things will play a role when you want to build your own practice because no one's going to look at you and say, hey, I want to hire you. I want to throw my money at you merely because you have a credential. It's not going to be about the credential alone. It's going to be about your reputation, your network, the social capital and relationships you've accumulated. And doing something like that can help you get there. If you don't want to be on a podcast talking, 
do the same thing with the blog. And you don't have to market yourself as an expert. You can say, I'm a student. This is where I want to be in four to five years. And in the meantime, I'm going to document my process of learning, studying, researching, and, and, and connecting with other people in my field. That can be something that can keep you happy while you're working towards that ultimate goal. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I'll just add something really quick. Um, you know, if, if you, Jordan... If the field that you're going to go into requires a license. So I understand if you want to call yourself a therapist, market yourself as a therapist, like, yes, there's a certain degree you're going to have to get. Um, there's not going to be a one, uh, one fits all solution as far as getting free tuition. So everything that you brought up with scholarships, with work reimbursement, whatever else it may be, it's all going to add up to help you uh, get this degree uh, debt free. Yeah. And that's ultimately where you want to go because you, what you're saying here is I'm not willing to saddle myself with debt. I'm not going to punish my future self for the fact that I want to go to college now. Right. Because you don't want to be paying this off for 10 years, 20 years, because that limits your possibilities going forward. What kind of practice you can have, what kind of job you can take, your career trajectory will be severely limited if you have a significant amount of debt going forward. And I wish you the best because you can certainly, a few years from now, when you get that degree and you have that license, you can walk away from that completely debt-free and into this new life that you're so much more excited about because it's not stifled by debt. And whatever you do, please don't let your degree be the most interesting thing about you. Mm. You will know you have succeeded when your degree is the least interesting aspect of your field and you're at that level that all the greats are at, where they say, introducing Stephen King, the author of this book. They don't tell you what college he went to, not because it isn't interesting, but it's the least interesting thing in comparison to all the books that he's written. (laughs) My degree's in business management. That's like the most boring Hey, what do you, hey, uh, what's your name? What do you do? I'm a business manager. (laughs) I've been trained in business management. (laughs) Let's move on to some social media questions. We have a question from Instagram. Allie asks, this year I'm opting out of a secret Santa gift exchange at work because there's nothing I want under $10 and I don't want to stress over a gift for a colleague I barely know. Why does this make me feel like a killjoy? And how do I get over it? Well, you might be a killjoy to someone else, right? Mm. You're always going to be a killjoy to Ooh, someone. I like sure. that, right? Yeah. And if we're going around attempting to please everyone all the time, we're going to be fairly unpleasant to ourselves. Mm. And so I think the reason you're having such a problem with this is an obligatory gift is actually a curse. If I'm forced, yeah. if Ryan said, in order for me to be on this podcast, Josh, every every Tuesday when we come in here and do these live streams, you have to bring me a gift. <laughs> I, I mean, it'd be an obligation, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And I would do it because he. Uh, I want him to be on the podcast. So every Tuesday, I'm bringing him some sort of like tie clip or cufflinks <laughs> or sunglasses <laughs> or a you know, gift card to Best Buy, whatever it is. Yeah. And I wouldn't feel great about it. But also, you know what? I don't think Ryan would feel great about it either right? because he would, at best, he'd just begin to expect it. And if I didn't show, if I show up one Tuesday without a gift, he'd be like, hey man, where's my gift? And he would start to feel miserable because I didn't give him the obligatory gift that he requested. And so I think that acceptance is what you're seeking here through the gift giving process. And acceptance is a gift. 
of sorts. But needing their acceptance is a type of curse. If you're going into the work or to any familial situation and I need you to accept me in order for me to be happy, fulfilled, content, at peace, I'm never going to be at peace Mm. because I'm constantly needing to do things. I have to prove myself, my worth to you, my value to you through my works. Now, I can be valuable. I can accept you and I can really appreciate your acceptance. Be grateful for your acceptance. But as soon as I need it, that's not acceptance. I'm not accepting you. I'm accepting the fact that there are conditions here. And I'm going to have to meet those conditions in order to get your acceptance. Well, is that even real acceptance anyway? Yeah, I mean, for me, it sounds like Ali's struggling with uh, feeling like they're adding value to their colleagues. And I'll tell you, a under $10 secret Santa gift is probably, you know, the least value you could add towards a colleague. So, you know, I would be asking the question if, if I was Ali about how am I on a regular basis showing my colleagues that I appreciate them? What am I doing for them? Or um, what am I doing in my job to show that uh, I do really appreciate them being my colleagues? And if you're doing that, um, if I was doing that, I wouldn't feel so bad about not doing the $10 gift. But I mean, if that's the only thing that you're doing, though, I could see where yeah, maybe you feel like, man, I don't really do anything for these these folks. The least I could do is do something under $10. Mm. I mean, if that's where it's coming from, I totally get the sentiment. Um, so then, and that doesn't mean to just give in and, and do the secret Santa. But what that does mean is try to find other ways to show everyone at work that you appreciate them. Mm. Not just on December 25th. Exactly. Mm. And I know this with Ryan. His birthday was recently. And I don't know if I texted you on the day of, but if I would have forgot, A, you wouldn't have cared. But B, like, I also wouldn't have felt bad about it. Right. Or calling you, whatever, because I go out of my way the other 364 days a year Mm -hmm. to be a gift to you. Yeah. And and I'm happy. Like, just yesterday, here's a, a great example. Just yesterday, Bex and I, we gave Ella a gift in the morning, right before I drove her to her unschool. Um, she comes out and there's this wrapped gift in the kitchen. She's like, oh, is this Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, like, what did you just ask? <laughs> I'm like, no. And she's like, well, why did you get this to, for me? I said, well, I don't need a special day to give you a gift. I can give you a gift any day that feels appropriate. And she was all excited. She opened it up and it was like this. Mm. She's been asking for, you know how I've got that fleece that I wear in here? It's real like fuzzy. on. It's especially fuzzy on the inside. She always tries to wear my fleece. Mm. And so I got her this purple fleece, which, you know, purple is her favorite color. And so it's very similar to mine, except it's purple. And I mean, she freaked out. You would have thought I got her a pony or something. Oh, my goodness. And she puts it on. right. I'm going to wear it today. I'm going to wear it every day. And I didn't need to wait until December 25th. Mm or wait until her birthday, or some special holiday to show her that I care about her, that I love her. The reason that we give gifts to someone is to add value to their lives. And a secret Santa gift rarely adds any value to anyone's life. In fact, it can extract value because now I just spent 10 bucks, I spent a ton of time, and now I am forced to do this sort of decorous dance with you. Here's your little obligatory gift. Give me my obligatory gift. Let me see if mine's better than yours. 
it becomes this competition, this comparison. Mm. Whereas with what I was giving Ella, I didn't expect anything back. Here it is. I'm giving you something because I want to add value to your life. Yes, you'll likely enjoy this and that's wonderful, but I don't need to give this to you for your acceptance. You already have my acceptance. I have yours, regardless of whether or not there's some sort of material good being exchanged. Yeah, man. This reminds me of this time when um, uh, this guy offered us cigarettes. We were kids. And the first guy who was with us, he took the cigarette and held it in his hand. Then, then the guy offered one to my brother. And my brother says, no, I'm good. And then the other guy who took the cigarette was like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually good too. And then the guy with the cigarettes didn't even waste his time offering me one. Mm. Like you immediately saw things turn around just because one person was willing to say no at the risk of being a killjoy, right? Yeah. It's not until you're willing to look like a killjoy that you can actually have the power to become a trendsetter. How many awesome things never come into being because we're afraid that someone else is going to oh, look at us like we're not fun. Mm. Oh, don't be so serious, you know? Don't be so serious. Just play the Santa game. Don't be the one guy that says you don't want to do it. Hey, man, I may be serious to you. I may be heavy to you, but I feel light to me because I'm being true to who I want to be, right? And so don't let other people hold you hostage to their personal concept of what it means to be fun. There are a lot of people out there who will threaten you, like, if you don't do what I want you to do, then I'm going to label you as a person that's not fun. Cool, no problem, because I'd rather have fun being me than look fun being who you want me to be. You know mm, what I mean? Yeah. Oh. Well, it's interesting, too, because, like, technically, you can't really kill anyone's joy. If someone is joyful... Yes. I mean, then they're joyful. Yeah. And, and it's and it's independent on how who someone else is or how someone else is or what someone else is doing. If it is dependent on that, then I would, you know, posit that they're actually not joyful. Yeah. Yeah. You, you saw the equalizer. You dressed like Denzel today. You got the haircut and everything. <laughs> um, there's a line in there. He said there's two types of pain. Right. It's like mm. the, the, the pain that you feel, that you experience, mm. and the pain that teaches you something. Mm. Woo. And this is a painful experience for Ali, right? Mm. Because it's like, oh, I'm going to be different. They're going to look at me strange. And there's some sort of pain there, right? And you can experience that and then say, oh, man, I don't want to feel that pain again. I might as well conform. I might as well get the gifts because I don't want to feel that pain. Or maybe it's the type of pain where it's, Ah, yeah. I'm going to feel this because it's going to teach me something. Mm -hmm. It's going to teach me that I don't need to give someone a gift to prove my worth, to prove my love, to prove my position among my friends, my coworkers, etc. I can simply show up and be me. And if someone is expecting more than me out of me, then that, that's their problem for their expectations. Mm -hmm. I can't kill your joy. If you're joyful, you're simply joyful. Now, I can do things that might amplify your life or enhance your experience of life, but it's not possible for me to be your joy. Yeah. Ali, I want to give you something practical that you can do that I honestly believe will change the game, not just for you, but for other people. I'm imagining myself as an employer checking my emails one morning and I see that I have a message from someone who works for my company and it says, hey, I really don't want to do the Santa thing for all the reasons that you just said. And I read that email, I would feel a burden to support a culture in my company 
where people don't feel like something that was meant to be fun is something that's making other people feel stressed out. If you feel this way, I can guarantee you two things. There are going to be some people who are like, ah, you should just, you shouldn't take yourself so seriously. But then there are going to be other people who feel like, yeah, I kind of feel the same. And they may not be in the company now, but they will be in the future. Anytime you take a stand to just be honest and say, you know, I just don't want to do this tradition. There will always be someone now or later who comes along and says, I'm really thankful that there was someone willing to be first. And now I get to experience the joy of having it easy and not having to do some BS that I don't like either. That's right. Yeah. We got a question from Facebook. Kelly wants to know, what do you do when you're purging unwanted items and clutter, but family members are doing the opposite? Oh, Hmm. yes. Mm. Well, let's talk about this. To me, it seems like a simple solution. You just give them the things you're purging. If they're doing the opposite, (laughs) what a perfect yin and yang. I did this when I first started simplifying. I went up to Ryan's house with about 70 neckties. (laughs) I didn't tell him about the minimalism thing yet. And he's like, oh, wow, you're getting rid of all these neckties? Sweet. He he was draped in neckties. There were headscarves, ascots. Oh, Oh, man. He was using them as tourniquets. Yes. (laughs) Oh, man. I'll never forget all those ties. Anyway, did you feel betrayed when you found out like the next week how no. much you're free with less? <laughs> no, to be honest, he gave me all those ties and like it wasn't but a month. I mean, whether, you know, I knew about minimalism or not by the time that month had passed, but like I had like basically taken five or 10 of them and then donated the rest. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you actually got some value from some of them. Yeah. And for I sure. think, think that's the lesson here that just mm. because you're getting rid of something that is not bringing any value to your life at all anymore. It's in the way. It has turned into clutter for you. Those neckties I was getting rid of were clutter for me, but they weren't clutter for Ryan. At least five Mm -hmm. of them weren't, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to realize that, well, conflicting desires, your desire is different from your family's desire. That is not a sign of moral failure, not on your part and not on their part either. Right. If the other person wants to amass things, collect things, and they say, no, I'm a maximalist. I want more things in my life. Mm -hmm. That's not a moral failure on their part. It's merely a preference. Yeah. TK, I loved what you said when we were at the Sunday Symposium last month, uh, the October one. We got our final one of the year coming up uh, November 27th, sundaysymposium.com. There's still a few free tickets left. But... You uh, were talking to this gal. I think her name was Heather, the first gal who asked a question. And she was like really upset. Like she was Mm. getting teary eyed. You remember this, Ryan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was super upset because she's like, I was supposed to bring my boyfriend here, but he he didn't come. He's trying to decide whether or not he still wants to be in the relationship. And they're at the event. We're talking about being wiggly versus being rigid and how Mm -hmm. everyone is a little bit rigid. Everyone's a little bit wiggly, but some people are more wiggly. Ryan's more wiggly than me. I'm more rigid than him. Mm. It's not an indictment. That's not a bad thing either. Being more rigid is not a moral failure. Mm. Mm. But if you realize that you're not getting the outcomes you want from too much rigidity, then it behooves you to be wiggly and vice versa. If you're so wiggly, you're not getting anything done that you want to get done. It behooves you to have some more structure, some more rigidity in Mm -hmm. your life. And the thing that she was talking about there is like, I want to be, I want to be more wiggly. But then she was saying, but there are so many, I asked for an example. Like, what are some of the things that you're rigid with? She's like, well, like, for example, I want the toilet seat to be down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. Uh, she said, no, I mean like all the way down because studies show. <laughs> and I said, let me cut you off there. <laughs> if you're starting a conversation where you're asking someone 
if they'd be willing to help you. You don't ever want to start the conversation with <laughs> studies show. Studies show why you should help me. Yes. <laughs> Ryan, the data says that I'm right. <laughs> it's not a great way to start the conversation. And I loved TK's perspective on this conversation. He basically came in and said, hey, listen, Heather, your preference is merely your preference. You can go into this and say, hey, it's my preference to have the toilet seat down. That doesn't require a single study. It doesn't require anything that's peer-reviewed. By the way, we appeal to authority all the time. The studies say, or, oh, mm -hmm. this is peer-reviewed. Hmm. Like, yeah. like, that's a good thing. Right. I was once at the zoo, and I saw an orangutan show his poop in his hand to a bunch of other orangutans. That's peer-reviewed. <laughs> But that's what we're doing quite often. <laughs> we're appealing to authority, right? Look yeah. at my crap, my oh. peer-reviewed crap, and yeah. I'm going to hurl this crap at you now yeah. in order to get my way. Mm. But if you simply show up and say, hey, this is my preference. It's my preference, Kelly, to live with less. It is my preference to own fewer things. It mm. is my preference to not indulge in consumerism. It's my preference to avoid the shopping mall. It's my preference to own fewer things so I have less clutter in my house. No one can say that you're wrong because it's merely your preference. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's something about giving an argument for your opinion that makes it sound like it's stronger, but actually signals a kind of weakness to other people. Because what it signals is I am psychologically dependent upon your agreeing with me mm -hmm. in order to feel comfortable having this preference. And so when I just state a preference, this is what I want. It's strong because you can't argue with the preference. You can say, well, I don't share the same preference, but that's it. But when I give you the argument for it, it's an invitation to argue with me because it's a way of saying, this is what I want. I prefer the toilet seat down or up. And in addition to that, Here's some research that says it, it would be superior for you to want what I want, or this is why you're an idiot or why you're illogical for not also wanting what I want. And that's going to stir up defensiveness and make the other people want to contend with you. Sometimes the strongest way to put your preferences ac across is to just state the preference and show that you don't feel the need to justify it. You don't feel the need to apologize for it, right? Yeah. Um, I, I do want to say something else too with this question about you're purging and other people aren't. It's really the same as any other approach that you take to making your life better. What do you do if you're trying to eat healthier and all of your family members and friends are still eating pizza three times a day? You force them to stop. You throw it out in front of them. <laughs> you guilt and shame them. You spit on the there pizza. You go. Right. There you go, right? Or what if you are starting to exercise more and all your family and friends are still being couch potatoes? What if you're starting to turn down the social media and the TV and focus more on reading or getting out in nature or bettering yourself and all of your friends are still addicted to their phones and addicted to TV. What do you do? You keep exercising. You keep working on your eating. You keep focusing on your projects. You keep going outside. You keep focusing on the thing you can control, which is your own personal development. And you let your life speak and you give other people the space to decide if they want to work on themselves when it is time for them to do that. But don't use other people as your reason to stop doing what's healthy for you. 
other people are always going to be moving in directions that are different from yours or opposite of yours. And you're not going to change them, right? You're not mm. going to preach at them and make them go, oh, okay, I want to get on your program and do the thing that you do. You just got to give yourself the freedom and the permission to pursue what makes you come alive, even when everybody else is doing things that for you would make you feel dead inside. Yeah. Yeah, Kelly, I totally agree with what you're saying here, TK. I mean, Kelly, your preferences are your preferences. Your family's preferences are their preferences. And there's no reason why those two can't live side by side with each other. And and maybe, you know, instead of having this, um, it sounds like a bit of a combative context, maybe, you know, work towards having a compassionate context. Like how how can you show your family um, not just support, but show them compassion when it comes to their preferences? Because ultimately, whatever their preferences are, to have a good relationship with others, um, we, we do have to be supportive. We do have to show that compassion. We do have to respect their preferences. So yeah, this isn't about getting your family to change. Um, to me, it sounds like how can you find a different context to help your preferences live side by side with your, your families? Hell yeah. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from social media. Yes, indeed. Now, during the lightning round, that's where we do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. And you can find all of our Minimal Maxims over at minimalmaxims.com. Looks like Lisa has a question for us. How do I keep stress at bay during a big move? No matter how much I try to plan and organize, it all feels so overwhelming. Professor Sean, let's mm. get 60 seconds on the clock for my good friend, Ryan Nicodemus. Ooh, it's me. All right, let's go. Um, Man, I... Uh, well, my pithy answer is this. Is uh, stress is a weapon people use to abuse themselves. Yes. So what I'll say is that when the stress arises within you, it's very easy to use that feeling of anxiety, to use that feeling of stress to beat ourselves up. And I personally used to tell myself that that was virtuous because I'm taking that negative feeling, I'm dwelling on it, I'm using it to make me feel a certain way. But the problem is this, is that when you abuse yourself with stress, it doesn't help you really do anything different. In fact, it can be paralyzing. So what do you do with that stress? You acknowledge it, you look at what it is trying to show you, uh, because stress and anxiety, it's a symptom. So the question is, is what is that symptom trying to get you to do? And you know what? Yes, it's getting trying to get you to be organized and to move and to uh, come up with some type of boundary to help the move go smoothly. So don't use your stress as a weapon against yourself. Ah, that was perfect timing. Yeah. TK Coleman, we got 60 seconds on the clock for you. What do you got for Lisa? When you resent your feelings, you resist the wisdom that they provide. We speak of feelings as if they are good or bad. But what that really means is it's pleasant or unpleasant. It's uncomfortable or it's joyful. But it doesn't mean it is evil for me to have this sensation or that this sensation is evidence that I am an evil person. It's okay to have an uncomfortable feeling without condemning yourself as being an evil person for having it. I feel jealous. I feel sad. I feel angry. I feel stressed. What's right about that jealousy? What's right about that anger? What's right about that stress? When you answer that question, then you can look at that feeling and say, 
thank you for pointing out to me the pain that I was experiencing as an indicator of some way in which my life was out of alignment. Now I can get it aligned and I can do what I need to do and I can say to that feeling, thank you for getting me on track. Mm, Yes. Lisa, I got something pithy for you. Let's do this. So of course, in your question, you say, no matter how much I organize and plan, I just feel so stressed. I would say maybe you feel so stressed because you're organizing and planning all the time. Organizing Mm. is well-planned hoarding. Mm. And so we're just constantly moving around all of our excess stuff. If we have too much, Mm. it doesn't matter how much you organize it. Yes, you're still going to feel stressed. The opposite of that, though, is you don't want to renounce the stress. You don't want to say, I want no stress for the rest of my life. You might feel like you want no stress for the rest of your life, but then what the heck would you do with your life? Some level of stress shows up and it shows you what you want to do in order to move forward. Renouncing the stress is not what you want to do. Clinging to the stress, amassing the stress, building more stress is not what you want to do. You want to experience the stress and let it flow through you. You can hold on to it for a moment, but don't cling to it. You can let it go. We got a bunch more to talk about. Oh, we got a home tour as well. We're going to dive into that. We got TK's tweet of the week. We got the amass it or trash it segment, but we do have some patrons who have joined us on a live stream. Let's check in with one of them right now. Alabama, you got any questions for us? We do. We have a question that comes from Catherine. She says, my body fluctuates due to thyroid issues. Is storing various sizes of clothes okay? When does it become clutter? No, you have to just wear medium and that's it. (laughs) <laughs> Otherwise, you're doing it wrong. You have to wear your clothes whether they fit or not. <laughs> Extra medium yeah. is uh, is unacceptable. Now, here's the thing. like We plan for seasons in our life, right? Mm. Now, that can be literal seasons. I wear a winter coat in the winter. If I wear that in July in Southern California, it is going to be inappropriate for me. Mm. So it's not that You have clothes that are inappropriate all the time, but you have some clothes that are going to be more appropriate for a particular season of your life. Mm -hmm. And that's okay unless you feel like holding on to those clothes is getting in the way of your well-being. That's the only time they become clutter. And so we use the seasonality rule. It's in the Minimalist rule book. You can download it for free over at theminimalists.com. We also call that the 90-90 rule. Have I used this thing in the last 90 days? If not, am I going to use it in the next 90 days? Be honest with yourself. Yeah. And if the answer is no, then I give myself permission to let it go. But for you, you might need to expand that rule because these aren't rules. They're tools. They're boundaries you can set up for yourself. And so what is the appropriate amount of time for you to understand that, okay, I'm not actually going to use this piece of clothing again. Right. And I can give myself permission to let it go. Maybe it's six months. Maybe it's nine months. You get to decide what that boundary is for you. And you can set up the boundary so that you can let go of anything that falls outside of that boundary. That's being compassionate to yourself. Ooh, yeah. Compassionate yeah. to yourself. That's, yeah, that's great. I mean, that's that's the question I would be asking, Catherine. Like, do you need to show yourself a little bit of compassion right now? Because your uh, your body does fluctuate. Um, or um, are you looking at your clothes? Because deep down, like, you know or you don't know whether or not you can get rid of some of those those clothing items. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's as simple as making the distinction between for me or for someone else after the too much. Is it too much for me 
Mm. Or is it too much for someone else? And sometimes we can know what's too much for me at the level of visceral experience. But what leaves the question mark there is, what will other people think of me? Mm. People that don't know all the details of my story, when they come and see how much stuff I have, you know, um, my wife and I, because of, you know, my injury and, and me going through PT, um, you know, I, I can't lift as much, you know, uh, yeah, as much as I used to, you know what I mean? I used to be able to lift. <laughs> I used to have no limitations with what I could lift. But uh, <laughs> the but gym would run out of weights when he was there. <laughs> <laughs> Why did his voice get so deep? <laughs> but, but, but there have been these moments where maybe um, my wife is pulling my luggage where she's carrying a box and I'm walking next to my wife, right? Mm -hmm. And she's this small, petite girl and she's carrying my stuff and I'm walking next to her. And then a few guys walk by and I just, everything in me wants to be like, hey, look, man, like I got an injury. injury. And that's why she's carrying (laughs) my stuff. You know what I mean? And so sometimes we get these insecurities because we know that our lives look funny in a way that doesn't make sense to other people. And you just got to not apologize for who you are and what you need. I don't need to explain myself to those people. Let them look at me weird. It is what it is. All that matters matters is that her and I are cool. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I got one more rule for you. I'm going to save it for the private podcast. It's called the repurchase rule. We're going to talk about that because I want to do a deep dive on that with Ryan. Mm -hmm. We're constantly coming up with these new tools, these new boundaries that help us better um, hold on to the things that add value, let go of the things that don't and bring things into our life that serve us for a particular season. It's called the repurchase rule. We'll talk about that on the private podcast. In addition to the Photo Friday home tour, the sucky ad segment, TK, the week you were gone for episode 364, you were sick and Wendy was here. You totally missed uh, on the private podcast. I, I, I wrapped a Pusha T verse. Oh um, man. Yeah. I mean, you got to go back and listen to it, but it was the worst ad I had ever heard. It was actually, no, it was the most disappointing ad that I had ever heard. What? I have one that now tops it. Ooh, as I can't wait. Worst advertisement of all time. Oh, wow. So check that out. Time. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Patreon.com slash The Minimalist. Malabam, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, Josh and Ryan. This is Molly from Michigan. What we do is we will buy things on trips that aren't stereotypical souvenirs. They're more everyday type items. So, for example, on our honeymoon in Ireland, my husband bought a tweed jacket, and it's great. He wears it in the fall. He wears it in the spring. It's a perfect jacket for that time when it's just a little too cold for a sport coat, but it's too warm for a big pea coat, a big puffy down coat, and it, it really fits a spot in his wardrobe and he was able to buy something there that's unusual, not the kind of thing you would get here. And then every time he wears it, it reminds him of our trip, but it's not just from Chachki. Hi, this is Dina calling from the Channel Islands in the UK. I just wanted to give some advice to anyone who might be planning their wedding. I'm currently in the stages of planning ours and as you probably know it can get expensive very quickly so we're looking at different ways that we can reduce the costs and we were discussing our wedding rings and basically 
I have some old jewellery that I no longer wear and I was looking at how I could let these go. So an idea that we had was to trade in this old jewellery I no longer wear to reduce the cost of the wedding rings. And we managed to reduce it by about £20 by trading in this old jewellery, which I know it doesn't sound like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but every little helps. And it was a really nice way of letting go of some old jewellery and putting the money towards something meaningful towards our future. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Before we get to our other simple living segments, let's read some more about less. The article, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, is called, What Do Superstars and Billionaires Need? It's from Kapil Gupta. His blog is called Conquering the Mind. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's like 18 pages. I just read it for the live stream and it's a bit much to try to read all at once. But fundamentally, what we're talking about in this article, I'll read the first page or so. Superstars and billionaires are said to have everything. Wealth, notoriety, freedom to go anywhere, buy anything. Yet, If the lives of superstars and billionaires are examined, it is often fraught with a heap of problems. And that's fundamentally what this article is about. I think we are seeking, and I'd like to turn this over to you two to to talk more about this. We're seeking a life of freedom quite often. Mm -hmm. And yet, as we accumulate more, whether it's more wealth, more stuff, more accomplishments, more trophies, more notoriety, oh, the New York Times wrote something about me or whatever. Those things are all fine, but it becomes a prison in a way because we oh, yeah. start to need more. Yeah, I would ask like free freedom from what? Great question. You know, I mean, when I think of ultimate freedom, I think about um, doing anything you want, when you want, unimpeded by anything. Mm-hmm. But that is its own form of misery. I mean, we've talked about in the past about that in the past. How you know a kid does whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, I mean, I guess parents are there to uh, impede what's happening. But when you see a child acting out just Mm -hmm. with no filter at all, I mean, then you look at that kid and you're like, oh, they're acting like a child. Yes. So again, like freedom from what? Freedom from misery? Freedom from pain? Mm -hmm. Freedom from, I would say, Ultimately, what we're looking for is freedom from control or power, Mm. someone else having power over us. Yeah. Right. Now, that doesn't mean we're looking from, we're looking to be removed from relationship with other people. Mm -hmm. Right. But remember when you and I were in the corporate world, Ryan, and we had a tyrannical boss and he had a lot of power over us. Mm -hmm. The irony of that is we gave him that power. Right. Now, there are a few ways that we gave him the power. One is, we were living a lifestyle that required us to maintain the job. So we couldn't walk away from the job. Right. And he knew that we couldn't walk away from the job. In fact, we had another boss that encouraged us to go into debt mm-hmm. because he didn't want us walking away from the job. He wanted people to be indebted and therefore he would have power over you Yeah, in, in that scenario. Not that I want to stay here, but I have to stay here. Right. And that is a, a loss of, of freedom, right? Because mm-hmm. I think you're right. Doing whatever you want, whenever you want, all the time is, 
is a particular kind of tyranny. Mm -hmm. It's not real freedom. Right. I I heard Jordan Peterson do this experiment of like, hey, do you want to play the game of freedom with me? (laughs) Let's play. All right, you go first. Um, okay. (laughs) And so when we argue like, yes, freedom in what context, right? Because if you, if I give you the rules to the game, oh, well, we're playing chess. Well, now Uh, you have some rules to follow, right? And with the rules, you take away a little freedom. Exactly. Uh, Right? I like that. And and Mm. so there is something interesting about maybe you don't want absolute freedom, but you want freedom within the bounds, right? Mm. You decide... I'm going to play by these rules where we feel as though the freedom, we don't have the freedom is if I, I show up to play chess and you start playing like checkers. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, you've changed the rules in the middle of the game. Right. Yeah. And now I feel like I'm not free because we agreed on one thing and you're showing up with uh, another set of hidden rules that I didn't even know about. Yeah. Or maybe somebody tells you, hey, you got to make this move, even though you kind of want to make a different move. Yeah, Mm. that's someone else uh, exerting their power over you. The irony of this is the thing that billionaires or superstars, as Kapil Gupta says in the article, the thing about billionaires and superstars, they're supposed to have more freedom because they have the financial freedom. Mm -hmm. But what good is financial freedom if you're now beholden to some other sort of oversight power, something that is getting in the way of, of living the life that I want to live. Mm. So that there's positive and negative freedom, right? There's what we want to be free from, what we want to be free for. We want to be free from constraints, other people telling us what to do, people lording over us. And we want to be free for the experience of feeling alive. We want to be free for the bliss of existence, to feel at harmony with ourselves and others. And it makes sense that we seek this freedom in things, in money and in objects and so on, because there is a certain degree of pleasure that things give us when we initially acquire them, right? So if I eat a cheeseburger, oh, that tastes pretty good. So it seems to make logical sense that if I have more cheeseburgers, I have more of that good feeling. And the more cheeseburgers I have, all the way out towards infinity, the more happiness that I will have, right? Now, we know right. at the level of experience that's not true because basic economics, the law of diminishing returns, right? Yeah. The value of each additional unit or rather the pleasure that you derive from each additional unit of consumption is progressively less satisfying. So I eat the first cheeseburger, that's as good as it gets. The second cheeseburger might taste good, but it's a little bit less satisfying. And then it starts to get to the point where each cheeseburger makes me sick. Yeah, you're right? punishing mm. yourself right? with your mm. freedom. That's right. And so this is what happens with the pursuit of money and with things. It makes sense. Like you get that thing, you make a little money, it improves your life a little bit. So more must equal more of that, right? And it's actually the opposite the more you put your stock in that to be the thing that makes you happy, you get to a point where you start to get sick with the possessions, sick with the absence of constraints because you lose the structure that makes real joy, real meaning, real fulfillment possible. Yeah. I mean, I have met um, really wealthy people, uh, you know, a billionaire I, I met and he's he, he was happy. A lot of wealthy people I know are happy, yeah. but it's not because of the money. Mm-hmm. Like the money is certainly um, 
an aspect to solving all their money problems. It also gives them an opportunity to give more than than someone like, you know, one of the three of us could give. But ultimately, like, when I see wealthy people who are truly happy, I can tell that, like, it's with or without the money. And it's because they've set up those boundaries in their life. It's Yes, within it's playing, themselves. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Playing that game of freedom. Mm-hmm. They, they know what game that they're playing, right? Mm-hmm. You could call it the game of happiness or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. It, you've set up those, those boundaries and you're staying within those boundaries. That, that can be with respect to diet and exercise. My boundary is I must exercise at least three times a week or my, my eating boundary is I'm only going to eat the paleolithic diet or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Whatever that boundary is for you and staying within that helps amplify your own contentment, right? Because freedom also doesn't equal happiness, right? Because you can have all the financial freedom You can have no bounds whatsoever. And I think what the article is saying here is like, poor people are miserable. Rich people are miserable because people are miserable. Why are we miserable? The commonality is not that billionaires are, we hear it, it's like a trope, right? Oh, those poor, you know, the poor billionaires, like everyone that I meet is miserable or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously not true. And maybe there is even a piece of the population where it's slightly, there's slightly less miserable over a certain income, right? Because your basic needs are being met at $70,000, whatever that number is for the average individual, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's 20,000. Who knows? It's all location dependent Mm. as well. Right. Right. So poor people are miserable. Rich people are miserable. This is uh, an advertisement to uh, become the middle class. (laughs) 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 And, and I think, you know, what Kapil would say is the middle class is miserable as well. Exactly. And, and the lesson that I take out of this is we often equate money with happiness or we equate stardom, acceptance, notoriety with happiness. Mm -hmm. And we get these things and yet we remain unhappy. Why is that? Well, I I do do think it's important to make a distinction between money doesn't make you happy and money doesn't make you happier. Money can make you happier relative to a life that is identical in every single other way with the only exception being you have more money, right? Mm -hmm. In that sense, money can make you happier. But money cannot make you happy as in happy as a final state because there are no, there's no amount of resources you can have that can erase or compensate for those aspects of your character that resist happiness. Mm -hmm. So if you've got the kind of attitude to where you know how to make yourself miserable, you know how to make everyone around you miserable, you interpret all of your circumstances as being evidence that the universe is against you, money isn't going to change that, right? You can have a lot of money and be a rich conspiracy theorist. You can have no money and be a broke conspiracy theorist, right? And so you can always have ways to make yourself miserable. That doesn't mean that money is bad or that money is irrelevant. What it means is that you've got to go deeper than the money if you want to find out what's going to give you that feeling of aliveness or fulfillment that you seek. Yeah. Absolutely. And like when I think about, um, you know, like uh, people in poverty and how, you know, they aren't as happy, it's it's not because they don't have the money. It's because they don't have, you know, the, the food on their table. They don't have the shelter over their head. They don't have uh, the electricity to, to, to heat the to heat the water. So, yes, I agree. Like money um, to a certain degree when it provides the necessities, like, yes, you could live a higher quality life, which can enable you and make room for more happiness. Um, it's interesting. I love the example of the chess game mm-hmm. because that's what makes games fun 
are the boundaries. You yeah. set up these boundaries mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, here's the boundaries and here are the rules. Now do with do with that what you will. And then that's what creates, um, that creates a, a fun game. It's like uh, with football, even, you know, you've got the out of bounds. You've got, mm-hmm. you know, you've got four tries to go 10 yards. You, you, you know, you can't do this. You can't do that. And um, it's still a very exciting game, mm-hmm. but it's because of those boundaries. If you take away all the rules mm-hmm. and take away all the boundaries, it would just be, it would just be chaos. That's right. And yeah. by the way, you're going to stop having fun if the other person takes away the boundaries and you're sticking to your own boundaries or vice versa. If you've just removed the boundaries and now you're playing on God mode, Mm -hmm. now it becomes less fun for you as well. Remember the game genie? Remember that? Yeah. (laughs) We're like with video games, like you, it was a basically a device you could hook up to your gaming system and you would essentially go into God mode where you were invincible. You had endless supply of whatever it was. And even in that game that in essence, there were still boundaries because you couldn't do anything outside that game, but the game was no longer fun. It was yeah. for a brief period of for time. For a second, yeah. you yeah. would get the spike of pleasure, mm-hmm. but then you realize like, oh, the thing that made the game fun was the tension, the friction, yeah. the inability to do everything allowed me to have the joy of the experience of that game itself. And yeah. I think the same could be said for life. Absolutely. My brother and I had that. There was a game we played that had God mode and like, no matter how many times your character got killed, you could come back. And what we started doing was creating challenges within God mode where it was like, all right, let's see if you can keep your character getting killed more than five times. And it's so interesting. Whenever our needs are met, whenever we're happy, satisfied and at peace, the first thing that we want to do is play games. And what does that mean? It means that we crave limitation because mm. a game can't be a game until you say, all right, let's take a limitation that doesn't define our reality and let's pretend that it does, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to play you that. in this game of basketball, but I'm only going to shoot with my left hand, mm-hmm. right? Um, we're going to play, but we, we, we have to make our move in 20 seconds or less. Let's literally create a limitation to see if we can overcome it or succeed within those boundaries. And then we can have fun. That says something about our humanity, Man, what we need for fulfillment. There is something there with... Yeah. Um, like like the subconscious secretly desires boundaries and you know the the conscious says no we don't we want that's why i tried to get as much money as possible and climb the corporate ladder as high as i could cuz i didn't want any friction i just wanted to be able to spend however i wanted to spend and that's what that's what i told myself but there is something to like secretly the subconscious does want boundaries yeah yeah hmm. let's move on to a talk aboutables segment here Gentlemen, I have a new rule for you. A new boundary, a new limitation, one might say. <laughs> He's so happy. He's like, you guys are going to love this. <laughs> you guys want boundaries? Oh, I got boundaries for you. <laughs> so I was, I've was i been thinking about this. You know, we did the Minimalist rule book, 16 rules for living with less. You can download it at theminimalists.com. One of the rules in there, Ryan, is the spontaneous combustion rule. I think mm-hmm. it's our personal favorite. You yeah. know, if you pick up any item in your house, Let's say you got 300,000 items in your house. You can pick up any item, an old shirt, a microwave, a toaster, a blender, a couch. If this item spontaneously combusted, how would I feel about it? It's so simple and it can be done in like five seconds. Right. Yeah. And and some people are like, oh, I'd feel terrible. Okay, mm-hmm. well, that's a sign you probably don't want to get rid of it then, right? right. But if it's a an overwhelming sense of relief, uh, you feel this full body exhale like... 
oh, yes. If that combusted, I wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. I wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this next rule is a perfect companion for that. And I call it the repurchase rule. Mm. And it's very simple. You ask yourself a question. Any item in your house, you pick up any item. It's this pen. It is my coffee table. It is my bed, my end table, my jeans. If I were to lose this thing today, if it went bad, if it went old, if it got lost somehow, would I replace it? Mm -hmm. Would I pay the money to buy another one of these? Take the jeans I'm wearing, for example. Let's say I got a giant hole in them and it was they were irreparable. Would I replace them? Well, yeah, definitely. I need to wear pants, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would definitely replace it. We have something else in our house where I'm like, oh, maybe it's the... Let's say we had a microwave. I don't ever use a microwave. Mm -hmm. Let's say the house came with a microwave. It didn't. But if it just combusted or if it went bad, if it stopped working, would I spend the money to replace it? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Now, what about something that is really troubling you? Mm. If you've got something in your life that's troubling you and you're like, I don't... I kind of want to let go of it, but I kind of use it sometimes. I don't know. Okay. Would you be willing to part with the money to replace this item? And if the answer is yes, then it's probably a useful enough item mm -hmm. that you'll want to keep using it. You'll want to hold on to it as long as you continue to get value from it. But the only way to know whether or not you're getting value from it is, would I actually replace this? Yeah. And now, we were talking earlier on the private podcast about when in doubt, go without. Because that going without actually extinguishes your doubt. This is a complement to that. Because if you go without that for a period of time, well, if I went without these jeans, I would know that I would kill my doubt because I know that I want to wear jeans. And so I'm going to bring these back into my life. Mm -hmm. Right. But let's say I go without something else for a while and I'm like, oh, I don't even use that jacket anymore. Okay. Well, then that's a sign to simply let it go. So the repurchase rule simply says this. If I lost this thing today, would I replace it? Yeah. And if the answer is an emphatic, hell yeah. Okay, great. Don't punish yourself for owning something that adds value to your life. Yeah. But if the answer is, nah, man, I wouldn't replace that. I don't really need it. I wouldn't be willing to spend more money to replace that thing. Well, that's a sign that maybe I don't need it at all. Yeah. That's what I do I with my it. hair, man. I was like, would I buy a rectangle and sit it on top of my head? Like, <laughs> just, just shave it off, dude. Just shave it off. Shoot. Alabama, do you got a theme song for us? Because it is, it is time for what? It's time for TK's Tweet, tweet of, of the, the week. week. Oh, yes. <laughs> TK did not send me a tweet today, but I got this one That's for good. you. Oh, dude, you could have just shared the tweet you had <laughs> and pretended like I said Why the you gotta tape. call him out like Why that? Why you gotta throw me under the bus, man? Because <laughs> he'll have one next week. It's all good. <laughs> We have it here on the screen. Jordan's going to put it up there on, on the screen. So someone named No Context Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Was it Jake name. Paul? No, he texted us <laughs> or he tweeted us rather. And he said, I feel like at the minimalists could chime in on this image. And in this image, maybe Danny, you could pull it up on the. So we've been talking about storage today, right? Yeah. yeah. And so we've got this image here. That's so cool. And. You can see it's like at night and the light on the... So it's this storage building. And, you know, the, the, the word storage is lit up. But the first three letters are not lit up. And it's shortly after a, some sort of rainstorm. 
and you can see the clouds in the background. It's rather ominous, right? Mm-hmm. But then in the puddle, the word rage is reflected. And so I called this one the anger of excess. Mm. I think sometimes when we have a storage locker, it's storing a bunch of things that we don't want to deal with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was talking earlier about Bex's storage locker. She keeps her camping equipment in there. And these are things that she wants to have in her life. And so it's great. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we try to hide the things that make us a little bit angry, a little bit frustrated, a little bit upset, yeah, a little bit overwhelmed. We feel overwhelmed by the things, so we hide it away and we run out of rooms in our attics or our garage or our basement or our closets. We buy more space, the 1.6 billion square feet of storage space in America mm-hmm. causes this kind of rage. And I thought this was a beautiful image to describe most of our storage industry. It's not yeah. wrong, it's not evil, but it is rage inducing yeah. for many of us. Man, this is like, this is a great picture. I can't tell if the the reflection is photoshopped or not because it's a different color. It's not. No. It just hap- it just comes up that color in the reflection. That makes sense. No, this is this is beautiful. That's uh it's it's art, but yeah. it also has a lot of meaning. But I guess it's good art does. It has a little bit of meaning yeah. to it. But yeah. Art imitates life. Yeah, ex- yeah. Art imitates life. It reminds oh, me of, oh no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, no. I was just gonna pontificate on the raging and and storage and how you know, I don't think personally my storage unit has ever made me like rage. Um, but uh, I remember like when we moved out to Montana, I didn't know how long we'd be out there. So I had a little storage unit with like washer and dryer and a chair. It was like a really small storage unit. And I was just kind of keeping stuff in Ohio until I knew whether or not we we're going to stay in Montana. It didn't make me rage, but it was always on my mind. Always. And I'll tell you, like when I got rid of that stuff, I just, I did a, um, a yard sale at the storage unit. I just put the address in the ad, like, "Hey, come to my storage unit." I'm, you know, getting rid of everything. And man, that was, uh, yeah, that was so freeing to like let let all that go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was just thinking this is completely random, but it reminds me of that old school horror movie, The Blob. <laughs> you ever heard of that, The Blob? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah yes. it's just like this, like gooey substance that looks like a, a like you know a spill or something, right. but. The thing is, whatever it comes into contact with, it consumes and then enlarges itself. Mm. And there are no limitations. So by the end of the movie, the blob becomes this massive goo that is capable of taking over the whole world, right? And Mm. it's funny because you realize near the end that this is a problem that could have been solved very early on had someone just been like Josh and seen the blob and been OCD about it and been like, let's do something about that little spill. But everyone just kind of had the sweep it under the rug mentality of like, ah, Mm -hmm. we can tolerate it. It's not that bad. We don't want it. It doesn't look good. It's not adding value to our lives, but it's small enough to be tolerable. And when you keep things around that you don't want, that you don't need, that don't add value to your lives because they are small and intolerable, they don't go away. Mm. They grow large enough to consume all the things that are valuable. Mm. Yeah. Comes like the blob. Yeah. That's what I think of when I see that photo. <laughs> Speaking of goo, I, love it. I was driving home a few weeks ago and it was dark just like this. And there's a goodwill uh, on my drive home <laughs> really close. And uh, we, Ryan and I just had this conversation 
about being gooey versus being prickly. It's a Alan Watts thing. And and ultimately, we're all gooey prickles and prickly goo, right? Like Ryan's more <laughs> gooey. I'm more prickly, right? But like I aspire to be more gooey. Ryan aspires to be more prickly. Like we always yeah. want the opposite, right? <laughs> and I was driving past and it was like this sign from somewhere. I mean, it was literally a sign of goodwill, but only the first three letters were illuminated. <laughs> Oh, man. And it was like the universe telling me, hey, Josh, it's okay to be a bit more gooey. (laughs) It's all goo. And if you take goodwill, it starts at goodwill, ends up in storage. What begins as goo ends in rage. (laughs) Yes. That's great. Well, let's move on to a mass it or trash it little segment that we do. You can send us yours. If you're having trouble letting go of something or if you have an obsolete object, you can send that to us as well. Just email it to Malabama podcast at the minimalists.com. She'll put it on a future episode. So this is a little segment where maybe you're thinking about letting go of something. Ah, should I hold on to it? Should I let it go? I don't really know what to do. I'm uncertain. Well, maybe we could use the repurchase rule with this. I certainly would with uh, with this one. Or maybe mm-hmm. there's some other boundaries we can set here as well. Yeah. Now, Nicole has this Peloton. Let's get that on the screen here, mm-hmm. Jordan. So I love this picture because it's the exact opposite of a Peloton ad. This is how Pelotons really look in our homes. <laughs> yep. You know, when you see a Peloton and the ad, it's yeah. like this remarkable living space. Open space. Mm. Yeah. Like so many windows. Right. It's mm-hmm. like paradise. Mm-hmm. And I've just added a bite. And there's always plenty of space for the Peloton in the home in the Peloton ad. Yes. It looks pristine. It's like they have a special space just for their Peloton. Mm -hmm. But in real life, here's what happens. Your view is of a closet (laughs) and a wall. Yeah. And it's just taking up the space in this room, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so what did Nicole say in her email to us, Malabama? Nicole said, my husband got me a Peloton for Christmas about three years ago. I never liked cycling and I didn't ask for this gift. Every time I talk about getting rid of it or selling it, he'll use it, and then it'll sit there for another three to six months before the cycle repeats again. I enjoy running and doing yoga as my form of exercise, which I do weekly, but I feel the need to make myself use this thing, even though I don't enjoy it one bit. Mm. Well, just because you use something is not a great reason to hold on to it. There are obvious examples here that that make a lot of sense. Like if you Mm -hmm. have seven spatulas in your kitchen... Well, yeah, you could, I guess, go out of your way to use all of them every single day mm-hmm. or it fits within the seasonality rule. So, yes, I used the sixth spatula within the last 90 days so I can hold on to it. But maybe they're still getting in the way. Yeah. And so, yes, your husband occasionally uses his Peloton, but it's getting in the way. It's getting in his way. It's get, certainly getting in your way. And can I also say, what a weird gift to get someone, <laughs> right? Because it, what is the implication of it? Like... <laughs> <laughs> you need Dangerous. to lose weight. That's what it is. You need to get more in shape. Yeah. And, and by the way, if the person asks for a gift like this or has been saying, oh, I really want to get a Peloton, then it's a beautiful gift. Yeah. But if you surprise someone with a gym membership that they mm. didn't ask for, mm. if you surprise them with a, I don't know, weight loss book they didn't ask for, or if you surprise them with anything that appears has the implication of I'm trying to change you 
leaves room for some resentment, even if that's not your intention, yeah. right? Yeah. Because to love someone is to see them for who they are, and then you can support them if they want to change on their own. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that was the case here, but I'm saying quite often we can misunderstand how the gift will be received by someone else. I think we have to take that into account. Like if I'm getting you a gift, how might they experience this gift when I give it to them? Mm. The paradox of justificatory usage. (laughs) I had a friend who back in the blockbuster video days, he'd rent a movie, no lie, and he'd watch it twice. And I asked him once when he first told me this, is that true even for the bad movies? And he said, yeah. And I go, why? And he said, to get my money's worth. Oh. So he would subject himself to the two-hour experience of re-watching a movie that he did not like. Why? Because he wanted to justify to himself mm. the cost that he spent to rent it. And anytime you have to use something just to justify having it, there's no use to it, Right. The best things to have are the things that you are free to use and you don't have to justify their existence in your life. Mm. If, if you don't want it, get rid of the thing. Don't force yourself to use it in the name of getting your money's worth. Don't put yourself through some terrible, horrific, self-stultifying experience because, well, the money's already been spent. That's right. The money has already been spent. Why add your energy and your time and your happiness to the waste pile? Yeah. Wow. Mm. Mm-mm. You know, this happened to me, Ryan. I mean, not the gift part, but we had a Peloton. We used it for a while. And yeah. then Bex and I both decided that we preferred to exercise in different ways. Mm. And it was weird because you're also paying a monthly subscription with this. So you're right. paying every month. You didn't already pay for the Peloton, but imagine with the, the the movie. Yes, you're paying for your, you paid for it once. Then you're paying with your time, your energy, your happiness, as you said, Imagine if you had to keep paying for that movie over and over and over every month. That's what you're doing with the Peloton here. We realized like it wasn't really worth our time. It wasn't worth our attention. Mm -hmm. And there were ways that inspired us to exercise more that didn't involve this monthly subscription. I'd prefer to do those. I always want to default to the things that compel me rather than the things that repel me. And I got to a point where I was Yes, I could get on there every day. I could force myself to get onto the Peloton every day. And that sounds like what her husband is doing. He forced himself to get on there occasionally. Mm-hmm. I had a great streak going. It was like 70 weeks straight or whatever. But it was 70 weeks of forcing myself. And I realized like I've become a slave to this expectation that I set for myself. Yeah, mm-hmm. I became a slave to the gamification of, oh, I need to keep my streak going. And then I intentionally broke my streak. I said, I can't do this anymore because the streak is making me miserable. Yeah, I'm playing a game I don't want to play anymore. And so I need to walk away from this. We sold the Peloton. Mm -hmm. We lost a little bit of money on it, but we got back our time and we found something that was more compelling for us. So for me, Mm -hmm. it was all about trash it. I didn't want to amass it anymore. Yeah. And if you're doing anything just for the streak... Like just for if if it's only because of the repetition and it's not really giving you anything other than that OCD relief of like ah I'm keeping it going then yeah I would I would say that's probably a bad reason to to do anything. Um, I mean Mariah and I we have our Peloton we use it a lot right we use it you know three to six times a week. Um, I if I got rid of the Peloton I'd have to find a substitution. So like I asked myself like if it spontaneously combusted 
would I buy it again? And the answer is like, yeah, we would absolutely get it again. So uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like this isn't adding a ton of value to you, Nicole. Um, you know, if your husband, if it's, if you leave it up to him, it's probably never going to get sold. So maybe you can go to him and, and with a different solution and say, Hey, uh, I know we're not going to get a hundred percent of our money back on this, but we could at least, you know, recoup some of it. And here's what we can do with that money. Yes. And maybe that would help him see the benefit benefit of it. Cause right now it sounds like Nicole's husband has, uh, the, the thought of like, Hey, I paid money for that. Um, I don't want to get rid of it because then I feel like I wasted money. So I'm going to get on it once every three months or once every six months, whatever it is Mm -hmm. to make myself feel like I'm using it. Um, There might be a, 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 there just might be a better use of that money that maybe would make him feel better to get rid of it rather than holding on to it. And and add to that a better use of that space, time and energy too, right? You might be able to say, if I, I only can get half the money back, but also here's what I do with that space I free up, that time I free up, that energy I free up. Yes, you're asking yourself, is this the best use of this money? The Mm -hmm. monthly amount of money and also the money we would get back from selling it. Is this the best use of this space in this room? Mm -hmm. I think you know the answer to that. For you, the answer sounds like is no. For Ryan, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. And so there's no wrong answer here. Right. It's just being honest with yourself. Is this the best use of my space, of my attention, of my time, of my money? This is the perfect time for the repurchase rule. And so my question to you, Nicole, and I would ask your husband this question as well. If that thing were to get lost today, if it were to simply get stolen from your house, (laughs) Mm -hmm. would you replace it? And if not, well, you can let it go. Yeah. I, I, Josh, I saw you putting on a ski mask. It was like, what if that thing just happened to get <laughs> stolen by Wouldn't somebody in all shame? black who breaks in and, <laughs> and steals it for you? We're How start- much would that be worth? We're starting a new business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the declutterers. That's right. <laughs> Man, I, so we have a sucky ad. This is our sucky ad segment where we yeah. review advertisements that are sucky. And a few weeks ago, episode 364 was the most disappointing ad of all time. Pusha T, who I think is you know, a true artist, and he, I think he changed hip-hop music in general, he wrote a McRib diss track for Arby's. <laughs> and, I mean, it was so, like, we talked about... It was just... I was just disappointed. I, I, it's, imagine, like, your favorite artist, you know, Mozart or um, Tom York, doing this thing that ruins their art in a way, right? You, know, you imagine the Mona Lisa with a McDonald's cup in her hand. Mm. You would look at that and you would say, oh, that's... That, yeah. I, I'm just so like, I'm turned off by it. Yeah. This is even worse than that. Oh, wow. Put okay. this on the screen, Jordan. Right. So as you can see here, we have... Actually, Danny, can you bring the iPad over here, please? I want to read this to the gentleman here. In fact, I'll have Ryan or actually TK read this so we can both see it here. Thank you, sir. So this is businesses are looking into space ads that make the night sky into a billboard. So, you know, when you go to the beach, gentlemen, Mm -hmm. and sometimes there's like a plane that's flying ads and running your beach experience yes. because of some lawyer or Coors Light wants you to know about their product or service. And right. now this loud airplanes and you're on the beach trying to like just enjoy the day, right? Yeah. Now imagine at night an ad that you literally could never get away from. 
space billboards, giant projectors in space that are over top of your city. So every time you look out the window, you see the Coca-Cola ad, no. the Justin Bieber ad right outside your window no. because it's in the sky. In fact, you won't even see the moon or the stars anymore because you simply have this giant ad in the sky. This is dystopian. It's terrifying because there's absolutely nothing we could do about it. Because even now, like living in LA, you can move to Ventura County like I did, right? You, or you can move to Montana. But like if you have space billboards, there's nowhere you can go. It's like projecting onto the moon. It's like... I mean, even in a way, like, it's like projecting advertisements like on Mount Rushmore, like on the faces of the presidents. Mm -hmm. It's almost like projecting it into your mind. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is, I wonder if that's actually going to have any traction. It's not a real technology yet, but there is a terrifying potential. They're asking about it. Yeah. That sounds like the premise for like a horror slash yeah. sci-fi film The Day the Sun Disappeared. Right? <laughs> Ooh, I'm gonna write that down. Many That's a nice years title. ago, wow. the sun disappeared What's to be replaced it? with a Reebok ad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody it, walks around. It's the mark of the beast. Everyone has like Reebok <laughs> on their forehead yeah. and it's really just the sun. It, and you know, I'm not like, I'm not a fan of regulations, um, but, it's, but this is why I'm like, oh, we need regulations because if we leave corporations unchecked, they will they will do things like this. Mm. And, and the crazy thing is it mentions in there that a study found that the advertising would cost about $65 million and still make a profit. That's what blows my mind. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How profitable wow. are those stars? You know what this sounds yeah. like? This sounds like the Tower of Babel Part 2. Mm. You know? on that. Well, the story of the Tower of Babel is, is that, you know, um, they're like, all the nations of the earth gathered together because they spoke the same same language and they came up with the idea of building a tower all the way to heaven. I to guess reach God. Were, yeah, I guess they were going to like break into heaven or whatever it may be. A <laughs> <laughs> lot, of, lot of different theories as to what this means, you know, esoterically. But, but basically, God came down and was like, there's nothing that's impossible for them. And so he divided up the tongues of the nation so that people speak different languages and they weren't able to effectively communicate or get along in order to succeed at building this, this tower. Mm -hmm. This sounds like Tower of Babel part two. Finally, years, thousands of years later, right? We speak the same language again, the language of technology, the language of mm -hmm. the internet. And so we're going to try it again. All right. The first time we were complete idiots and uh, we wanted to build ads up in heaven. Now we're going to do it again. Mm -hmm. And and like, the, you know, you're going to see like the angels come down and be like, get rid of these ads. <laughs> get rid of this stupid stuff. Just kicking over billboards. I hope that's what happens. Oh, so man. stupid. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if I could vote on this, I'm voting no on the space billboards. Yeah. Likewise. Please, please don't let this happen. Oh my Sounds goodness. like Space Force. Mm. <laughs> we got a Photo Friday home tour. This is number 16 in our series. Every Friday, if you're a subscriber to the video version of the Patreon podcast, actually, I'll, I'll grab that from you real quick. This is our most recent Photo Friday home tour. Danny, how do I do this? Here we go. All right. So this is our backyard. You see it up on the screen if you're watching the video version. If you're just listening to the audio, don't worry. I'll, I'll do my best to describe this. We sent this photo to you last Friday. If you are on the video version of the podcast, you just get an email. And 
This chair is called a spun chair, the Magus spun chair. This is Ella spinning around in our backyard. I know it's fairly sparse back there. We have a few plants. You can see our neighbor's backyard there. They have a lot of stuff. Their shed is getting ready to fall on my fence. And uh, they have a whole compound of like little outposts in their backyard. <laughs> it's uh, it's quite comical. Um, but this, Ella... This chair, did you get this from the idea from... There's a museum. Is it the Hammerhead? What The Hammer Museum, which Hammer is our museum. next photo. Go to the next photo, oh, wow. Jordan. So here's me and Ryan. We are spinning. This is from <laughs> our series. We did the series called Let's Talk About Less. This is episode three, the thumbnail for episode three. That's great. This is, I think, from back in 2019. We were we went to the Hammer Museum. We, we just took an impromptu photo shoot there with yeah. Jordan. So he took this photo in these spun chairs. And we had a blast at them. And, I know. And we were 40. I see. You, you, ha- you have fun. I can prove it. I have pictures. <laughs> I had a fun. <laughs> just once, Ryan. Right, right. He was acting. Yeah. <laughs> it was an act of fun. It's a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. <sighs> But no, she, so Ella will now go out there in the backyard. She'll take her, like, she wants to watch her tablet or she's doing reading or whatever it is. And she'll just go spin in this spun chair. Yeah. And we don't have a whole lot back there. We have a a dining table and we have this little spun chair that anyone can sit in. (laughs) And it's a work of art. It looks beautiful. It enhances the way the backyard looks. And just if you just looked at it, it would be pretty. That's why it's at the Hammer Museum like that, right? But it's also functional art. And... That is something that we're trying to do in our home. We want form and function, right? Because there are some art pieces that are just nice. They look, you know, a little vase or whatever, but the vase that holds the flower is also functional, right? And so when you can merge form and function, so much so that you're having fun, because you can't have function without fun, (laughs) (laughs) then... um, I think it just enhances the space. If you're creating opportunities for fun at home, whether it's for the kids or for the adults, it amplifies the joy. The joy is already in you. But if you set up the environment, and usually, what is that? What do you really notice about this photo? There's not a bunch of excess. Right. Imagine if we had a bunch of things in the backyard that were getting in the way of the spun chair, then she couldn't move around in it. Right. But by removing the excess, and we just have this you know, the backyard concrete, that's all there is. Yeah. And the stuff doesn't get in the way. And when you remove the excess, it makes room for that fun. I was explaining this to Ella the other day in her room. She, um, she was saying, well, I feel like I don't own enough stuff. <laughs> I like stuff. You know, she's just trolling you, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I feel like she is. <laughs> I say, um, but she, I was explaining, she's like, there's just, there's like so much space in here. Mm. It's so empty. Hmm. And I said, yeah, there's a lot of really beautiful space that you can, when your friends come over, don't you enjoy playing in your room? She's like, yeah, we're able to like spread out on the floor and like we'll wrestle. And like, oh, okay. Could you do that if it was just filled with a bunch of stuff? She was like, oh, no, hmm. it would just get in the way. And that's exactly what happens. Yeah. The stuff gets in the way, prevents us from having the fun or the experiences that we want to have. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream. Alabama, what do you got for us? We have a question here from Cato. What are your laundry routines while having a limited wardrobe? Ooh, limited wardrobe. Yeah, once a week is is how often we wash our clothes. I mean, me and Mariah, uh, I have enough to go maybe like a week and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, my pants, I have, uh, I basically have two pairs of the pants I'm wearing now. I have 
uh, two pairs of shorts that I wear. And then I've got, you know, I don't know, 10 t-shirts. Um, but long story short, like I always have something to wear. Sometimes maybe it goes two weeks and I've got to like pull out the, I don't know, the bright orange shorts that, um, <laughs> you know, I use for painting or I don't know, like, yeah, I, I got to pull something out and like wash everything. But yeah, it's really not that difficult, especially like when we go on vacation, I used to bring everything. Like if we were gone for yeah. two weeks and I got 10 t-shirts, I'm like, well, I'm going to bring all 10 of them because I need two weeks worth of clothes. And now I do five days. Mm -hmm. I bring five days worth of clothes. And then if I need, you know, clothes, uh, more clothes than that, then I just plan on doing laundry after those get dirty. But like, we just went to New York for 10 days. I brought five days worth of clothes. My aunt had a washer and dryer. We did laundry once while we were there mm -hmm. and it worked out great. My laundry routine as a minimalist is so much more freeing mm. than when I was a maximalist. Oh, yeah. yeah. So here's what would happen before is I would just let clothes pile up and pile up. At one point, I bought an extra hamper so I could have more clothes pile up yeah. without it just spilling over to the rest of my clothes. But now, because I have fewer clothes, it forces me to stick to a routine. I do the same thing. I do laundry once a week and I'll wash the shirts that are dirty, the underwear that's dirty, the pants that are dirty. And I don't really worry about, oh, am I going to run out or whatever? There is a point. You, know, you remember our first documentary I had the red underwear? Yes. It yep. was, it, well, it's a blue <laughs> pair now. I have one pair, blue pair of underwear. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, if Beck sees me wearing those, she, she'll always say, oh, it must be laundry day. Right. <laughs> and it tells me that's my last pair, right? Yeah. But here's the thing. I never freak out. I never panic. There's never, I'm never running out. Right. Because I have everything that I need. I don't have too little. I don't have too much. I have just enough. Yeah. I've got to get you guys some Christmas underwear. <laughs> Christmas socks. Yes. It's funny as an adult. Just I, hear those. <laughs> my uh, my mother in law. She'll get me socks for Christmas, and it, it's like perfect timing because I usually it, it's about a year. Once a year, I need new socks. But as a kid, every time I got socks, I was like, "Why am I getting socks for Christmas?" As an adult, I'm like, "Yay, socks!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. totally. Oh, shoot. Well, everyone knows what to uh, send in to the. Uh, <laughs> To the office for Ryan for Christmas. Please everyone, send us your socks. Everyone knows what to get me for uh, Secret Santa. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think I just decided that I am going to rock Christmas socks all year round. I think I want to get rid of all my socks and just replace them all with bright Do colored it. Christmas socks. I dare you. Do it. I love it. That's great. Yeah. I say go for it. Heck yeah. Done. <laughs> New branding. All right, y'all, before we get to our added value segment this week, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Actually, I have two things because Black Friday is coming up real soon. We have a Black Friday video. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. You got to check it out. It's over on YouTube and it's called Let's Talk About Black Friday. It's one of the most popular things we've done on YouTube. A lot of people find value in it because we talk about not just the origins of Black Friday, but how Black Friday is is absolutely making us miserable. The expectations of others or the expectations set forth by corporations often make us feel inadequate, mm -hmm. insecure, ashamed, incomplete. And it's creating this incompletion in our lives, which then fuels the consumerism of Black Friday. Act now. Supplies are limited. Doorbuster sales. You can opt out of that. And that video We'll show you how. It's called Let's Talk About Black Friday. You can find it in the show notes or just 
Look for that over on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Minimalist. Also, coming up, our last Sunday symposium of the year, November 27th. Me, Ryan, TK, and the rest of the team will be here in L.A., 200 seats only. It's the last Sunday symposium. We've had three magical Sunday symposiums, yeah. and they just keep getting better. It's not our intention to make them better, but they just do. It just keeps every Sunday symposium. I'm like, oh, that was my favorite one. Yes. Oh, no, no, this one's my favorite one. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's pretty, it is pretty special. Well, it sold out, but we just released 20 new or 20 tickets, free tickets. Half the tickets are free, half are paid. If you can afford to buy a ticket, that will get a ticket for someone else who is in need. Or if you can't afford it, show up. You just need a free ticket. You can go to sundaysymposium.com. We'd love to have you there. Help us build this community together. One thing I noticed this last one, a friend of mine came and, and she mentioned that I was amazed by how many, she came by herself. And she said, I was amazed by how many people actually just show up by themselves. Yeah. And it's that deep need for community. You can connect with other people. You're not forced to. We don't say, hey, you have to talk to your neighbor for three minutes or anything like that. But you can show up by yourself. You can grab one free ticket. You can be there. You can have this community experience with us. We never know what to expect, except it's been a magical time every time. Yeah. November 27th at noon, downtown Los Angeles at Dynasty Typewriter. Sundaysymposium.com is where you can find the free tickets Get them before they are gone. It's the last one of the year. For our added value segment this week, I was thinking about what is one possession? Earlier on the private podcast, we were talking about the repurchase rule. Mm -hmm. And if I were to lose something, would I repurchase it? What What is the most valuable or most useful item that I have in my home? And certainly one of the most useful items I have is a pull up bar. Yeah. The one I use is called the perfect pull-up. Now, I can tell you inflation is really getting to us because I remember I spent 20 bucks on this. It was 1995, mm-hmm. and they're $32 now for the same pull-up bar. Yeah. But it's well worth it. It's something I use every day. I hang from it constantly. I'm hanging, and it really helps with my shoulders. If you have any neck pain, shoulder pain, back pain, hanging from it for an extended period of time, and then also just doing pull-ups throughout the day. Every time I go to the bathroom, I'm going to do six pull-ups real quick, right? And it's on the way to the bathroom. It's not like I have to exert a whole lot more effort. And it's built this beautiful routine into my days. And for 30 bucks, it's something I use every single day of my life. Mm. You can see it here on the screen if, uh, if you're watching the video version of the podcast. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. It's for 30 bucks. It's the thing that adds the most value to my life. And I was thinking about this the other day. If I needed to, if I lost it, if it broke, it's the first, I would replace it immediately because yeah. I get so much value from it. Now, does not mean, will you get value from it? Well, yeah, only if you use it. Just hanging up a pull-up bar in your house doesn't do anybody anything. In fact, it could become clutter. It could get in the way for you. It could become an eyesore because while it looks fine, I would prefer that it was invisible. And so, yes, it takes up a little bit of visual space, right? But it's something I use every day and I get immense value from it. Yeah, you, Yeah. I have one too. I, I wanted to know, I wanted to ask you directly, do you ever use the pull down thing? You see how it is in the photo. No, but my wife does. Really? What does she do to do that? Like, does she do something? Is it just because she's shorter or? No, no. It's because she ha- she doesn't can't do a bunch of pull-ups at once. And so it's almost like doing an assisted pull-up essentially. So yeah. it, it's allowing you to pull 
but you have your feet on the ground so you're not pulling your full body weight all the way up. Yeah, and it also it does work a different muscle group in mm-hmm. the back when you do when you do those, yeah, the when you yeah, whatever position that's called. I used to do those as well. Like I would do pull-ups. Mm-hmm. I don't have a, I don't have a perfect pull-up. I need to get one. I actually so we moved to this this apartment and it was during the pandemic. Um I couldn't find a perfect pull-up bar. Mm-hmm. So I got one that very similar to what we brought on tour with us in 2014. Yeah, and um, I kind of, I, yeah, I do miss the being able to like have a couple of different exercises with that with that bar. Anyway, yeah. I use it every day, yeah. and it's uh, it's one of the things that adds the most value to my. It's probably my most useful possession. That's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Alabama Podcast, Sean. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it